Hello and welcome to Tony and Leona Live. I'm Leona. And I'm Tony. Happy New Year to all of you. Yes, happy 22, everybody. Thank yeah. you for being loyal audience members of the Tony and Leona Live show. We mm -hmm. appreciate you very, very much. Wish you nothing but the best, most happy, peaceful, joyous 2022 possible. Absolutely. Today's also the Feast of the Epiphany, which mm. I think it's really important to remember that uh, the three, supposedly three, but the wise men who came to visit Jesus were Gentiles. They did not know the first five books of the Bible, and they wasted no time recognizing the importance of the baby Jesus being born. Uh, they recognized that before many others who probably should have known that significance. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful reminder to me, at least, that God became man for every single person. Hmm. So today's show, we are going to be discussing BLM, mm -hmm. uh, responding to Black Lives Matter with compassion and with truth. Mm -hmm. And it's part of our series of, what do we call it again, Leona? Catholic Social Teaching. Yeah, Catholic Social Teaching. So I think every single thing we're talking about today absolutely applies whether or not you're a Catholic Christian and whether or not you call yourself a Christian. And we're going to really try to do this without the view of partisanship. You know, mm -hmm. Everything's done, Republican versus Democrat, progressive versus conservative. But really, mm -hmm. we want to focus on like uh, truth, mm -hmm. how Christians should view this, mm -hmm. and respond with compassion. Because Black Lives Matter isn't wrong about what they're saying. Black lives do matter, undoubtedly. Mm -hmm. And for all lives to matter, black lives need to matter. Mm -hmm. uh, that to me seems like truth. Mm -hmm. but and I think specifically naming a group of people who are or have been historically mar marginalized uh, is important. That's not diminishing from others. In my, another example is that we specifically name and discuss the unborn because they are dehumanized. It doesn't mean that the unborn are more important than born people, but because they are specifically dehumanized, we rehumanize them. Um, and I think that's important too with with discussing people who are, are marginalized or mistreated or have been in other ways as well. So uh, as American Christians and Catholics, we do believe we are absolutely called to act in the name of justice, truth, and equality at every instance where we observe racism, when any person is treated with brutality, or when one of our brothers and sisters tells us they are hurting and need help. This is at the core of who Jesus taught us to be and who we are, even if we don't call ourselves Christian. Quite honestly, there are easy instances to spot racism and injustice. When an obvious disregard is caught on video camera showing a police officer kneeling on the neck of a black man in custody, we all agreed that what we saw was infinitely wrong beyond the shadow of a doubt. Where we disagreed was how we react, what demands need to be made to change society. And I think we also disagree on how we define institutional racism, hmm. whether it exists, uh, most importantly, if it does exist, what can we do about it? And that's where I think what we're defining, the problems we're seeing matter, because that will affect what solutions we, we see. Uh, does compassion include setting aside a critical look into root causes? Does compassion include a refusal to look into data? Does compassion include... Or telling others not to look into it. Mm -hmm. Does compassion include choosing to make a decision based solely on what someone else tells you is the right decision, rather than using your own reason to delve into root causes and efficacious solutions? Does compassion include ignoring unintended consequences of claims we're told 
any ethical person must adhere to? You might guess that my answer to these questions is no. We think that true love is willing the good of another person. If we truly care about one another, we must care about the effects of actions, the truth of what we're told, and data regarding what we're told. We know that many will blatantly lie, especially those in power. And compassion does not require us to agree with and or further spread lies. In fact, I think it's the opposite. We and, should not. And furthermore, lies. we all have confirmation bias, which Absolutely. maybe isn't a direct form of lying. But mm -hmm. if we have a viewpoint of the world mm -hmm. and we almost want it to come true so bad that we can lie to ourselves and be mm -hmm. like, see, 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 look at this. This is proof positive evidence mm -hmm. that this is true. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to really move past that sort of mm -hmm. viewpoint and focus in more on compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most confusing things to me in 2020 and 2021 was being directly told to not look into the background of issues, to not look into data. In fact, some people who I respect very much uh, publicly said that doing so is racist. So we'll talk more about that mm. a little bit later. Um, just some general background. In June 2020, right after the murder of George Floyd, Coleman Hughes, who's a 26-year-old black man who studied philosophy at Columbia University, wrote for City Journal, which is a public policy magazine published by the conservative Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Hughes' writing has appeared in many other places too, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. But uh, I wanted to talk about this piece and share a lot of what he says in it, and we'll share it on our Instagram page as well. Um, I think it's a really, it's a great piece, one, because I do think it's important to listen to our brothers and sisters who are affected by things in a different way than, for example, I am. Um, right after the murder of George Floyd was when I first read Just Mercy, and then soon after that read one of Ibram Kendi's books, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and then a little bit after that read Thomas Sowell's Discrimination and Disparities. I think it's important to read and listen to what other people say. But this piece in particular, written by Coleman Hughes, I think is helpful because um, he gives a brief background of BLM, the national organization, which I think is good for all of us to know. And then I think he does an excellent job of laying out the good of the BLM movement and also what he sees as where they have, have caused harm. And so, just to point out, he is a black man, correct? Mm -hmm, and and I think you maybe said 26. that. 26, so a mm -hmm. young black man still kind of forming his thoughts mm -hmm. in the world. This article shows his train of thought over a period of time yeah. from like 2013 yeah. all the way uh, beyond uh, George, the George yeah. Floyd tragic murder mm -hmm. and what happened afterwards. So yep. it's important that, you know, people say, oh, well, you're white. You can't have an opinion. That's that's not true. Or you're Mexican. You can't talk about what black people experience. Mm -hmm. That's not true. We're all human at the end of the day. However, I do think there's some validity if we're going to be talking about racism, if we're going to be talking about institutional racism and the effects of our past history mm -hmm. in America, it's very important to hear the perspective mm -hmm. of Absolutely. African Americans, people mm -hmm. who walk in the shoes and so that we can better understand uh, a perspective other than our own. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So Hughes writes, quote, the Black Lives Matter movement began with the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013 and rose to national prominence in the wake of Michael Brown's death in 2014. 
My view of BLM is mixed. On the one hand, I agree that police departments too often have tolerated and even enabled corruption. Rather than relying on impartial third parties, departments often decide whether to discipline their own officers. The legal doctrine of qualified immunity sets what many say is an unreasonably high bar for civilians bringing civil rights lawsuits against police officers. Body cams, which increase transparency to the benefit of both wrongly treated police suspects and wrongly accused police, are not yet universal. In the face of police unions that oppose even reasonable reforms, BLM seems a force for positive change. On the other hand, the basic premise of BLM, that racist cops are killing unarmed black people, is false. There was a time when I believed it. I was one year younger than Trayvon Martin when he was killed in 2012, and like many black men, I felt like he could have been me. I was the same age as Michael Brown when he was killed in 2014, and like so many others, I shared the BLM hashtag on social media to express solidarity. By 2015, when the now familiar list had grown to include Tamir Rice, Laquan McDonald, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, and Walter Scott, I began wearing a shirt with all their names on it. It became my favorite shirt. It seemed plain to me that these were not just tragedies, but racist tragedies. Mm -hmm. Any suggestion to the contrary struck me as at best ignorant and at worst bigoted. And we all heard that sentiment, mm -hmm. um, yeah. not necessarily from uh, African-Americans, but from usually well-to-do uh, white progressives, a lot of them Catholic and Christian, mm -hmm. who tend to have a certain amount of privilege. Mm -hmm. So Coleman Hughes goes on to say, my opinion has slowly changed. I still believe that racism exists and must be condemned in the strongest possible terms. I still believe that on average, police officers are quicker to rough up a black or Hispanic suspect. And I still believe that police misconduct happens far too often and routinely goes unpunished. But I no longer believe that cops disproportionately kill unarmed black Americans. Two things changed my mind, stories and data. First, the stories. Each story in this paragraph involves a police officer killing an unarmed white person. To demonstrate how commonly this happens, I have taken all of them from a single year, 2015, chosen at random. Timothy Smith was killed by a police officer who mistakenly thought he was reaching into his waistband to grab a gun. The shooting was ruled justified. William Lamont was killed after he allegedly failed to show his hands upon request. The shooting was ruled justified. Ryan Bollinger was shot dead by a cop who said he was moving strangely and walking toward her. The shooting was ruled justified. Derek Cruz was shot in the face after he opened the door for police officers serving a warrant for a drug arrest. The cops recovered marijuana from the property and the shooting was ruled justified. Hughes names five other white people killed by cops all in 2015 and then says, for brevity's sake, I will stop here, but the list goes on. In Hughes's words, for every black person killed by the police, there is at least one white person, usually many killed in a similar way. The day before cops in Louisville barged into Breonna Taylor's home and killed her, cops barged into the home of a white man named Duncan Lemp, killed him and wounded his girlfriend, who was sleeping beside, beside him. Excuse me. Even George Floyd, whose death was particularly brutal, has a white counterpart, Tony Timpa. Timpa was killed in 2016 by a Dallas police officer who used his knee to pin Timpa to the ground, face down, for 13 minutes. In the video, you can hear Timpa whimpering and begging to be let go. After he lets out his final breaths, the officers begin cracking jokes about him. Criminal charges initially brought against them were later dropped. I have read into that in the past, and in that case, Tony Timpa is actually the one who called the police. He was having some type of mental health crisis, um, and he called the police, and then 
I guess they killed him kneeling on him or he died when they were kneeling on him. Yeah, and so one thing that we want to make clear too is that we're not going over this data to prove, oh, look, you no. know, the, everything's perfect with policing. Like, no. they're police, being a police officer is a very difficult job. Mm -hmm. uh, it's dangerous job. Every time they pull somebody over, there's a risk of mm -hmm. something going really, really, really wrong, which we saw in the case of the Brooklyn Center cop. Kim Potter, I believe her name is. And Dante Wright. Yeah, I mean, every time there's there's the risk of life and death, not only for the person you're pulling over or trying to arrest, but for the cop themselves. So it's A, not an easy job. B, they don't get paid a lot. C, um, there's other jobs where you could get paid more that are a lot safer. So you, you already inherently have that. But then number two, not every cop is a good cop. There mm -hmm. are bad apples out there. There are entire police precincts that are corrupt. There's an old old boys club that exists in some of them. So we're in no way defending police, nor are we condemning police. We're simply pointing out facts, mm -hmm. um, which is something that people have said that you shouldn't do. Uh, but we just wanted to point that out, like just because cops rough up and kill white people and they also rough up and kill black people does not justify these actions in these cases no, nor, nor do they are we saying that they should be condemned we're just saying this is a very gray area mm -hmm. that uh is being dealt with here mm -hmm. and i do think it's worth noting i mean i do have a lot of respect for the cops who i know who um i think work very hard to to do an excellent job um and truly to keep everyone safe um, and I do think it's a little bit interesting that we will pick out all of these, um, like we name the people who unjustly are harmed by cops, but there are a lot of people harmed and killed by people in different professions that we kind of gloss over. Like mm -hmm. more people, for example, are killed by medical error every single year than by cops by a long shot. 250,000 estimated people die every year from a medical error. Yeah, and yet medical professionals are almost always de facto seen as heroes, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really interesting because in most cases, even during the pandemic, um, I was pretty protected at my job. We have security we can call if something gets violent. Um, Again, even during the pandemic, I, I was much better protected than anyone else and uh, just de facto seen as a hero, even though so many people do die from medical error. So it's just it, kind of an interesting. Another example would be the achievement cap in yeah. education. If you look at the Twin Cities, look at the Minneapolis Public School District or St. Paul, they have the highest or the third highest achievement gaps in the nation, meaning graduation rates, reading scores, math testing scores, the difference between students of color and white, their white counterparts has the highest achievement gap or one of the highest in the nation. Does that mean that the teachers unions are racist? Does it mean that our educational systems are racist? They may have a lot of inequality stemming from that. Um, but it's again another example of of something we completely ignore. Mm -hmm. We we tend to blame the most obvious examples that we yeah. see on video, yet we ignore 
you know, out of those 250,000 people dying from medical error, uh, I would venture to guess that most of those people who are dying tend to be on the lower mm -hmm. side of the socioeconomic yeah. scale and also tend to be people of color. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we should continue with the data. Yeah. So Coleman Hughes says, you might agree that the police kill plenty of unarmed white people, but object that they are more likely to kill unarmed black people relative to their share of the population. That's where the data comes in. To demonstrate the existence of a racial bias, it's not enough to cite the fact that black people comprise 14% of the population, but about 35% of unarmed Americans shot dead by police. By that logic, you could prove that police shootings were extremely sexist by pointing out that men comprise 50% of the population, but 93% of unarmed Americans shot by cops. Instead, you must do what all good social scientists do, control for confounding variables to isolate the effect that one variable has upon another. In this case, the effect of a suspect's race on a cop's decision to pull the tr trigger. At least four careful studies have done this, and Hughes links to each study and will provide his article in the comments if you want to go to those links. Um, in Hughes' words, this is kind of his conclusion, if not for BLM, we probably would not be talking about ending qualified immunity, making body cams universal, increasing police accountability, and so forth, at least not to the same extent. In fact, we might not even have a careful national database on police shootings. At the same time, the core premise of the movement is false. And if not for the dissemination of this falsehood, social relations between blacks and whites would be less tense trust in police would be higher, and businesses all across America might have been spared the looting and destruction that we have seen, he says, in recent weeks, I would say the past two years, but especially this summer was written 2020. in this, 2020. Yeah. Hughes poses the following question. Didn't the urban riots of the late 1960s wake Americans up to the fact that racism did not end with the Civil Rights Act of 1965? According to him, as for these riots in the late 1960s, progressives should not praise them for shocking Americans into action without also noting that they directly decreased the wealth of inner city black homeowners, that they scared capital away from inner cities for decades, worsening the very conditions of poverty and unemployment that the rioters were supposedly protesting. What's more, the case for violence rests on the false notion that without it, little progress can be made. Recent history tells a different story. In 2018, the NYPD killed five people, down from 93 people in 1971. Since 2001, the national incarceration rate for black men ages 18 to 29 has gone down by more than half. Put simply, we know progress through normal democratic means is possible because we have already done it. His solution, millions of Americans on the left need to realize that deadly police shootings happen to blacks and whites alike. As long as a critical mass of people view this as a race issue, they will see every new video of a black person being killed as yet another injustice in a long chain dating back to the Middle Passage. That sentiment, when it is felt deeply and earnestly, will reliably produce large protests and destructive riots. The political right has a role to play as well. For too long, all lives matter has been a slogan used only as a clapback mm -hmm. to BLM. What it should have been, and still could be, is a true movement to reduce the number of Americans shot by the police on a race-neutral basis. If the challenge for the left is to accept that the real problem with the police is not racism, the challenge for the right is to accept that there are real problems with the police. Absolutely, and this is very broad-based kind of general assumptions that, mm -hmm. that are being made, but how many shouting matches do we have to see online, on video, mm -hmm. at protests, where people, oh, lives matter, no black lives matter, no blow. Mm -hmm. Both can be true. They both yeah, have both to be are true. true. And, yeah. and you could even say that there's, there is potentially a hierarchy. You could even make the argument that 
in order for all lives to matter, mm -hmm. black lives need to matter. Mm -hmm. In order for all lives need to matter, babies in the womb need to matter. Mm -hmm. In order for all lives to matter, disabled people mm -hmm. need, their lives need to matter. And so I it's would easy also, to say, sorry. okay, white lives matter. Yeah, we get it. We do live in a majority white Euro-centric type society here in America. Mm -hmm. And so that's not the issue. The other thing is in order for all lives to matter, in order for black lives to matter, we can't only look at how the police are affecting people. And mm -hmm. that's where it's one of the many reasons why I think it's appalling that people have said you ought not look into root causes, the effects of these things. Like if you are questioning anything about the BLM national organization, you're racist. Um, for many reasons, I think that's appalling. You need to look into how many kids are being killed by stray bullets as an effect or as a result of what BLM Well, I just saw an article yesterday, two of them. Mm -hmm. So around, uh, and it was an increase from 2020 to 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, but in 2021, 1,500 children, I think under the age of 16 years old, died of homicide. So they died from the hands, whether there was intent or not, it doesn't matter. They died from the hands of another adult human being. Mm -hmm. Tragically, two days ago, we just learned of the story of the niece of George Floyd, who lives yeah. in the Houston area, who was sleeping in her home, in her family's apartment. There was a shooting of some type outside the apartment. Stray bullets went through the walls, hit, hit her at least one time, if not a couple times, pierced her lung. She almost died. This is George Floyd's niece, who's well under 10 years old, little girl. And the first articles that come out that I'm reading about this, they, they insinuate that this was some type of a targeted attack. But you read the article and there's no insinuation of a targeted attack. Or there's no like Late, Later articles came out, later that day, I mean, that said... The police failed to respond in a timely manner to do their investigation. And you read, and, 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 and it's, it, there was no emergency delay. Hmm. The delay was, I think, maybe the investigators were an hour or two late hmm. to come take the question. So beyond everything, too, we need to look at, and people do, but how the media is framing these questions. Mm -hmm. And are we actually standing up for the true victims? Are we actually making lives better for those historically and currently marginalized in our country? And those are questions that I think we're, we should be compelled to ask. Yeah. And um, so these people who are telling you not to look into this, not to look into the stats or not to look into the details of these horrific instances that occur that are accentuated and highlight from the media, they're, they're not acting in a Christian manner because as maybe Christians... Maybe not intentionally, but... We're called to seek the truth, to live in the truth, and and to deny lies. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be an investigative reporter, right? But it, it just means that in this day and age, especially, you can't just read a headline and expect that to be mm -hmm. your truth. And and we're seeing the same thing. Not to go off topic, but we see the same thing with the coronavirus and mm -hmm. the doses. Don't look into that. They mock researchers mm -hmm. even. The, yeah, the, and, the, the people in the opposition, oh, they, they're just obsessed with research. Mm -hmm. You know, they Googled, you know, it's like, it's the same type of thing. And mm -hmm. don't let them sway you because the truth matters. Yeah. So you said this before, but there's no doubt that white people are a majority in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and that people whose ancestors have been in this country for a while and who are not 
ever enslaved in this country were likely able to own land and property that positively impacted their own lives, their children's lives, their descendants' lives alive today. It's also true that police officers used to work to capture those who escaped enslavement. Um, of course, this is appalling, and these realities, as well as others, can't be ignored. But does this mean that all policing at all times, regardless of current laws, is inherently racist and must be abolished? Are there other areas we can put our time and money that will help far more than defunding the police? So to accentuate one point there is, and I don't think it's made enough, Native Americans and the African Americans who are the descendants of slaves have a much different cultural and, and unique history. Mm -hmm. Their culture, if you're African American descendant of slaves, you were taking, taken from your homeland by force and you were put into America by force, mm -hmm. bonded by shackles and sold into slavery. Or you were in America. But there was no was choice involved in that matter. Mm -hmm. So that's different from a refugee coming here from Somalia mm -hmm. or people immigrating from Liberia, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. A parallel example would be Native Americans. They lived here and called America, various regions, their homeland for hundreds of years prior to when the European white man arrived. Mm -hmm. They were conquered for lack of a better word their culture was stripped for, from them genocide was committed against them the american government infected the populations mm -hmm. with smallpox we killed their food supplies there's pictures of buffalo that were murdered by the tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands we just not we i should say we the people who came and settled america destroyed their way of life and robbed them of their culture and sectioned off reservations that increasingly shrank and shrank and shrank. Yeah. So there's something absolutely positively true about the cultural deprivation that can be systemic for generations. Yeah. And you can see that evidence by immigrants who come to America on their own volition, on their own choice, even if they're fleeing a horrendous situation. Mm -hmm. They don't have those same, they came here with freedom. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a very important yeah. part that many, many people kind of dismiss mm -hmm. and be like, wow, that I was agree. 200, 300 years ago. I wasn't a slave owner. Well, yeah, you, even though some people say you're responsible, we don't believe that. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for your actions today, for your life, the totality of your life. You're not yeah. responsible for what your great, great grandparents did. If, if that were true, we'd all be SOL. Yeah. So. I just wanted to point that part out. Yeah, though. I think that's a great point. Um, this is brief. I just want to mention it. One positive change that I see that hasn't yet been mentioned is that, at least in my life, um, I think that artwork, literature, uh, children's books, and advertisements have become more diverse. And I absolutely think that representation has improved. I think it's very important. And I think to at least some degree, credit for that goes to the BLM movement. So I think that's a positive thing that just doesn't really fit in with kind of the rest of the conversation, but I wanted to say it. Um, other solutions that I think we desperately need, um, and then we'll go into more about all of these. One, an economy that provides for equal opportunity for all to succeed. 
Two, decreased crime leading to safer neighborhoods and more presence of fathers due to less homicides. Three, decreased incarcerations. Four, it's kind of a question, but can money currently spent on prisons be better spent? And five, police reform and transparency. So Jason L. Riley, who is a black who is a black man and a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, had a piece published in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal in June of 2020, which addressed the economy, safe neighborhoods, and presence of more fathers due to less homicides. He cited criminologist Barry Latzer, quote, Latzer has noted that the homicide rate for black men fell by 18% in the 1940s and another 22% in the 1950s. It's probably not a coincidence that black poverty declined by 40 percentage points over the same period, and black incomes grew at faster rates than white incomes. Safer neighborhoods help facilitate upward economic mobility, which is something the defund the police crowd might keep in mind. He goes on to say that between 1990 and 2016, the overall homicide rate fell by 34%, and among black men, it fell by 40%. Had the black homicide rate remained at 1990 levels through that period, tens of thousands of black men would not be alive today. That's the end of, of his quote. So all of this tells me a couple things. One, it's very important that we have an economy where people have equal opportunity to succeed. Um, it's also important that we recognize that we have in the US done better in the past. There was a time in the 1950s and 60s uh, when black incomes were growing at faster rates than white incomes. So this tells me it's really important that we're working for decreased crime, which will lead to overall family stability, presence of parents due to less homicides and less incarceration, and more economic movement in a direction that benefits both the community and the individual. I also think that Hugh's points from the beginning of our show are pertinent to this conversation when he discussed how the riots of the late 1960s decreased the wealth of inner city black homeowners, that they scared away capital from inner cities for decades, worsening the very conditions of poverty and unemployment that the rioters were supposedly protesting. So 1940s and 1950s, economically, things were in a better spot. And then 1960s, late 1960s, things kind of started going downwards again in terms of black incomes and, and uh, home ownership. What was different when black incomes were rising at faster rates than white incomes in the 1940s and 1950s? What can we do to return to that? So these are, these are somewhat complicated macroeconomic questions. Mm -hmm. So following the 1940s and 50s, following World War II, mm -hmm. uh, a decade out from the Great Depression, mm -hmm. the baby boomer, the population was, was skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, the dollar was beginning to dominate the world as the global currency. Like America emerged from the ashes of World War II as the superpower. Mm -hmm. You know, the rest of Europe was destroyed. So this time of unprecedented economic growth mm -hmm. lifted all ships. You know, yeah. rising tide lifted all ships. Mm -hmm. And I think that it especially helps people who are on the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a huge factor. Yeah, there was very little income tax back then. Mm -hmm. There's very substantially less regulations. You could go out and start a business pretty easily. Um, the war led to more, uh, even more mixing of the races. Mm -hmm. Even though there was still a lot of segregation at this time, 
throughout the country in churches and neighborhoods the the soldiers fighting together side by side i think helped to advance some yeah. of the racial equality mm-hmm. so so bottom line is is i think that massive economic growth mm-hmm. and unprecedented uh growth in capital led to these conditions these economic conditions that were favorable for everybody yeah but especially for people of color communities of yeah. color in america because things were going up so fast mm-hmm. we saw a similar phenomena, although shorter and less pronounced from 2016 to 2020 during uh, President Trump's presidency, as much as people thought President Trump was a racist and Mm -hmm. a white supremacist, which I I don't agree with at all. Did he say some things that were crazier or got people's attention or made people mad? Of course, yeah, he did that, no doubt. But during his time, black and Latino unemployment was at the lowest rates ever. Mm wages for blacks and latinos was rising business ownership in these communities was rising home ownership and uh the cost of goods was was relatively under control although inflation was still going up during this period so can i say a quick thing about wages i remember looking into numbers and it wasn't just that wages were increasing it was that year wages for year-long employment like for so it wasn't just like seasonal work or something. So I, that I'm not very good with economic things. That's why I like read about it a lot and have to just keep reading about it. But that's an important thing because it means it's not just like, oh, for this job you have for a few months, your wage is increasing. But someone who's employed the entire year, their wage is increasing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry to cut you off. Yep. So yeah, I mean, getting having a good job and having a belief and confidence in yourself mm-hmm. that you can work make money, save money, take mm-hmm. care of your family, be independent. Like these are the te- types of things that foster an improved quality of life for everybody, mm-hmm. which is why the economy isn't isn't the economy's colorblind in a lot of ways. So if you're in charge or leading a an economy of the size of the United States, mm-hmm. you re- you want it to benefit everybody yeah. because these benefits trickle down and they literally do benefit most now do people still get left behind absolutely like Mm -hmm. that's part of the problem i think with the economy too is it Mm -hmm. it 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 doesn't take care of everything right but i think those those are the strong factors though that were especially present in the 1940s and 50s that's helpful so with all you said i i think that we've talked about some of the good things that we've seen from the blm movement i think it's absolutely worth questioning why does the blm movement in my experience, never discuss how to return to a time when black incomes were rising. Mm -hmm. Why do they never discuss that we have done better in the US in terms of home ownership by black people? Um, How come they don't promote the nuclear family? Mm -hmm. And even though they deleted it, quote unquote, disrupt the nuclear family, they deleted that part from their website. But that used to be a core mission of BLM was to disrupt the nuclear family. And going back to the 1940s, 50s and 60s, divorce rates were Mm -hmm. incredibly low for married couples of all colors. And since that time, and and it's been more pronounced in marriages of color, mm-hmm. specifically African-Americans, the divorce rates have skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. And we all know when you have broken homes, broken families, alcoholism, 
financial stress, drug addiction, mental illness, maybe having one parent who's present. Some kids have no parents. Mm -hmm. That this leads to disastrous outcomes, negative outcomes for their offspring. When you say they used to have disrupt the nuclear family as a main tenant mm -hmm. um, in their website, I have yes, and that was as recently as 2020. I don't remember when they removed it, it but like it, it wasn't like in oh, that in 2013 year. they had this. This was most definitely in 2020. Um, but your point's a I, good one, though. That if if they want. If, if BLM was really interested in improving the lives of people of color, mm -hmm. they would promote the nuclear family mm -hmm. and they would promote job opportunities and, and really capitalism at the end of the day. So we can come back to capitalism in a minute. With the nuclear family, I can name and I won't, but I can name a lot of people I personally know who uh, publicly on social media in maybe they were private groups, but publicly uh defended blm saying that they want to disrupt the nuclear family so they were not saying no blm doesn't want to do this they were saying yep that's one of their main goals this was in 2020 and this is good because people from non-white cultures have very close ties with grandparents for example with aunts and uncles things like that that is sometimes true i know a lot of white people who also have very close ties and live with extended family I think that's beautiful, regardless of whether you're white, biracial, person of color, et cetera. That's a beautiful thing. However, if you have a grandparent or an aunt and uncle or multiple aunts and uncles living with you, your nuclear family is not disrupted. Your nuclear family also has extended family living with you. That's what that's called. We would never say, oh, that is a disrupted nuclear family because aunts and uncles or grandparents are living with them. I'll give just one example. I worked in the PEDS ICU for several years and then just for two years in a PEDS specialty clinic. There were children who were brought to the ICU with just a grandparent or brought to the specialty clinic. So not well child checks. These were children with significant underlying medical conditions brought to clinic by a grandparent because a parent was not involved or sometimes just the parent was working. I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, it is not better for a child to have a grandparent with them in that situation than one of their own parents. It is not better. I absolutely think that multi-generational living can be a beautiful thing. Multi-generational involvement is a beautiful thing. Grandparents and aunts and uncles are so important. They are not a replacement for the parent. I can tell you, at least in a medical setting, they are not a replacement for the parent. Well, that's... So to say that we want to disrupt the nuclear family rather than say, yes, let's have the nuclear family enhanced by extended family. Those are very different things. Yeah, but you don't want to overstate that, though, because absolutely it's a better replacement if your mom is a raging alcoholic or your dad's abusive or addicted to drugs or so depressed that they can't get out of bed. Yes. It's better to have your grandparents there. And it's better to have your grandparents there than it is to have a stranger there. Sure, that's true. I guess all I'm trying to say is it is not good that the parent is not able to be there. If the parent and a grandparent is there, that's awesome. I, I'm just trying to say like the disruption of the nuclear family yeah. should not be a goal. Right, I agree with that. Enhanced multi-generational living, a beautiful thing. But there is no need to use the word disrupting the nuclear family right. if what you're actually working for, which is what people claimed BLM meant, but I do not think they meant that, 
Um, people were claiming, oh, they're just trying to talk about the beauty of multi-generational living. That's not called disrupting the, nu the nuclear family. So yeah, that, I appreciate you saying that. So the reason I think we should be discussing when have we done better? When have black incomes been rising? When has black home ownership been better? Is not to pat ourselves on the back. Like, look, we have done better at times. It's not for that reason. But th the reason we ought to discuss it is to recognize we have implemented better solutions at times. Why have we moved away from them? Can we return to those solutions and then further them even more? Um, I do not think that those who are anti-racist must have voted for Trump necessarily, but to not even be discussing the solutions put in place under his administration, and even further to say, we're not going to look into data. We're not even going to look at what life looked like uh, for people of color under his administration. Instead, we're just going to call him racist. If you think there's any defense to his policies, you're racist. Don't look into data if you do your racist. Like if that's the only thing people are saying, that doesn't seem very solution focused to me. Yeah, we made a, a, in the 2020 prior to the election when we first started podcasting back when we used to call the show Hello Minnesota, we made uh, I thought was a really good and informative podcast, which you can still find on Spotify and iTunes and other places, but just about the policies that have been put into place and comparing the policies between Joe Biden's almost 50 years as a political leader compared to Donald Trump's mm -hmm. uh, four years as president. Mm -hmm. And we took every instance of when they there was massive outrage against Trump about being racist, and, 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 and then we compared it to Biden's long history mm -hmm. of a, when he used to partner with Strom Thurmond, yeah. who was a known Insane. segregationist in the U.S. Senate. He was the most known segregationist. Joe Biden and Strom Thurmond were, were, were best buddies, mm -hmm. legislatively speaking. They mm -hmm. wrote policies together. Joe Biden was in charge of the, uh, the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. He was the Senate leader. He partnered with President Reagan, which President Reagan was a great president, but I don't think the war on drugs was a success. I think it actually led to increased incarceration mm -hmm. of people of color, nonviolent mm -hmm. people, turning them many into lifelong criminals yeah. for simply using a drug, yeah. which was awful. Yeah. And Joe Biden was the one who bragged to the mm -hmm. US Senate about how he changed the crack cocaine laws in America so that if somebody was caught with crack cocaine mm -hmm. compared to somebody with powder cocaine, if these were equivalent amounts that the person with the crack cocaine would automatically go to jail for five years This sent hundreds of thousands if not millions of black people mm -hmm. and latinos into our prison populations it's all documented mm -hmm. another thing that's documented is our vice president kamala harris denied i don't know how many cases but at least some cases where it could have been proven that a black person currently incarcerated was actually innocent based on a dna test and she when she was the was she the attorney general no attorney general attorney general in california that she said no to looking into that and kept people in prison like things like this are these are actual policies that we should be looking into not just the words that someone says well, going back to joe biden and the crack policy too is we all know hunter's problems his son hunter biden joe biden called him the smartest guy that he knew um, but Hunter Biden had a terrible, and maybe still does, crack cocaine addiction. 
on video on his laptop. There's multiple, multiple, multiple pictures and videos of Hunter Biden with crack cocaine. How tragic is it that his father was responsible for increasing the mandatory sentencing of five years specifically for crack cocaine yeah. while his son is sadly doing the same thing? Like, how ironic is that? And, you know, the crack cocaine issue is important because that's even though the they never put it in the law, like if you want to talk about institutional racism yeah. or inequality, like crack cocaine was is a drug that's used by people of color primarily, although white people do it too, but it's a it's a lower status drug because it's cheaper and people tend to use it on the streets. And cocaine, on the other hand, is kind of a white privilege drug that people use at the clubs or in their father's basement and in some rich suburb, you know, uh, or, or rich college kids use it. They Less typically don't caught. get caught using it. Mm -hmm. People typically can get caught more easily smoking crack because you're on the streets, you have to do it in the open and so on and yeah. so forth. So to me, there's no better example of just blatant racial bias and racism in a specific law that was promulgated by the current president of the yeah. United States who was voted into office by these people who claim to be anti-racist yeah. and who claim that Trump was so bad. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, if you actually look at what was happening on the ground, this is why results are so much more important than rhetoric that you see in the media. But the lives of blacks and Latinos in America were improving dramatically from 2016 to 2020. Mm -hmm. And it's abruptly stopped. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why, despite all that rhetoric and false information in the news, Trump won a higher percentage of the black and Latino vote than any Republican has since like 1960, mm -hmm. if not even before that. Mm -hmm. And that's despite being called a racist and a white supremacist every single day in the yeah. media. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And now that we've had almost uh, we've had a, a about a year of the Biden administration, yeah. more people have woken up to this than ever. I uh, hope so. I don't they, well, they have. I've seen black people yeah. who have woken up to this. They're like, I can't believe I voted for Biden. Yeah. We were tricked. We were duped. I guess who I don't see that from is white progressives. Well, they're never going to change. Okay. But keep going. So it does seem that solutions brought forward by BLM um, are not focused on any of these things. They have, however, I think, led to increased homicide. Well, I know that we have had increased homicides in 2020. And then 2021 had even greater homicides than 2020. So we have had an increase in homicides. Um, neighborhoods are less safe than they were. Um, I don't know if all of that can go back to BLM, but I can say that so many people pushed so hard to defund the police. And what's difficult is that I think the goal, I want to believe that the goal was good and the same goals that I see. They were seeing... Let's allocate these funds from police to to other things that can help to build the economy, that can help for better housing and better education and all of these things for communities that have been historically marginalized in our country. So I agree that those are the solutions that we want. I think it's very strange to have a myopic focus only on defunding the police. Um, not a whole lot of talk about sentencing reform, 
which isn't necessarily perfect either, but not a lot of talk about that. Um, and then virtually zero discussion or acknowledgement of any of the actual solutions that we're discussing. Um, it seems that really all you're allowed to say, quote unquote, is there is inequality in the US. It is because of racism. The only solution is abolishing the institutions that we are telling you to abolish. Um, so seems there's not really a lot of acknowledgement of the fact that, well, some inequalities are most definitely because of racism. We have named some, not all are. So again, if we're not identifying the problems and the causes of them, we really can't solve them. Um, I do wanna say on the flip side, there are those who say there is no institutional racism or that racism is solely a problem of the past. I don't think that that's accurate either. I think you explained really well how um, the way that your ancestors were either brought here or the way their culture was or wasn't changed when they were already living here, whether you were enslaved or whether you owned property, um, those things do affect people going forward. So I, I don't think that we should discount that at all or ignore that. Um, moving forward, we've touched on the economy, decreased crime, safer neighborhoods, increased presence of fathers. Um, are there ways that we can effectively work for decreased incarcerations? Um, not passing the 94 crime bill, I think would have helped given where we are today. Are there things that we can do? Um, in terms of incarceration rates, 32% of the U.S. population is represented by African-American and Hispanic people, but 56% of the U.S. incarcerated population is represented by African-American and Hispanic people. So these specific numbers are from the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So Black people and Hispanic people are disproportionately incarcerated in the U.S. Also, according to the NAACP, 5% of illicit drug users are Black, but black people represent 29% of those arrested and 33% of those incarcerated for drug offenses. Um, at least with drug use, it seems obvious that black people are disproportionately arrested and incarcerated. Um, I, yeah, I think you explained at least one of the reasons for that with Biden and the crime bill. Um, it seems clear that disproportionate sentencing for the same crime that targets a certain race or people in a certain socioeconomic class. Um, if it's giving certain people a harsher punishment than their richer or whiter counterparts uh, is a clear case of injustice. Uh, and I think racism in this case. We can, we should all be working against this inequality. It's absolutely wrong. And the effects of this on individuals, the children of those incarcerated individuals, and then their entire community is deep and I think long lasting. So rooting out these inequalities in our society is necessary. We should not, however, assume that injustice in this case means that this same injustice can be rightly applied to every situation. Before going into more data, I just want to say these are really difficult topics to discuss. I care deeply about fighting racism and inequality. I truly want safe neighborhoods for all excellent education for all children. I think that truth matters. I'm also white and grew up in a two parent home where both of my parents worked very hard to provide for us, were able to work hard to provide for us. Neither of them committed a crime or were victims of a crime. Those are huge privileges that I was able to grow up with that many children did not have. 
I also was taught a lot of basic principles that have been helpful, like healthy eating, education was paramount in our family. I think these are major privileges that I was able to um, grow up with that still affect me today. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for those things. I do think some of the privileges I experienced may have looked different had my parents' ancestors been enslaved in this country or had my parents been unable to keep a job for whatever reason. Or if your parents were alcoholics or prone to violence or if they beat you or if they ignored you or sent you to a different type of school. Yeah. Lots of different factors that accumulate into what we describe as privilege right right for, for those who are lucky enough to have it even though that's a relative word but the fact of the matter is throw race aside if you were born into a family with ideally two parents who love you who value education who value hard work who teach you the difference between right and wrong who take an active involvement to mentor you about these things your chances of success are exponentially higher than somebody who's born into a one or no parent family that's broken, that has drug addiction, that has mental illness, and multi-generational poverty. It's just a fact of life. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in studies have shown that if you, even in, in St. Paul or Minnesota, if you take out you know a confounding factor of is, is somebody from a stable home or not, that achievement gap virtually disappears. It's as simple as that. Which is pretty incredible. So I want to acknowledge all of those realities about myself. I also want to reiterate one more time, because I think it's very important. It, it really was appalling and absolutely disheartening to have so many people in 2020, including people I know and love, including teachers of children I know, including policymakers, publicly say that it is racist to look into data, that it is racist to do your due diligence to look into the effects of BLM, the national organization, rather than accepting them. People Mm -hmm. clearly saying, if you look at BLM and your response is to delve deeper, you are racist. Mm And this is where this is where we are trying to highlight where the discrepancy of BLM comes into play because we want to give BLM credit where it's due. They raised attention. They brought public awareness. If if BLM if BLM did not make a big deal of of the George Floyd murder, would there have ever even been a charge, or would Chauvin have even been convicted? Mm-hmm. You can say the same thing about Ahmaud Arbery, although BLM although, was not involved yeah. in that as much, but the activists mm-hmm. who were supporting and bringing attention to the murder of Ahmad made a difference. Mm-hmm. And so thank God justice we was. We don't want to say, no, don't do activism right. or don't support Black Lives Matter or don't bring attention to police brutality. Absolutely, you should. Mm-hmm. Same thing, we should bring attention to medical freedom, mm-hmm. medical choice, the risks of certain medical procedures. It's well within our rights and duties as mm-hmm. citizens to do that. So we, th- I just want to make clear we're not yeah. pouncing on it. But then also there's agendas behind everything, right? Mm-hmm. There's an agenda behind medical freedom. Mm-hmm. There's an agenda behind BLM. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or that you need to jump on board. 
and this type of white uh, uh, um, gaslighting in a way where you believe this, don't question it, and if you question it, you're racist. Like that's horrific, mm -hmm. and and that's a sign really that they're trying to push society into something unknowingly or duping them to jump on board with something they don't even understand mm -hmm. the full consequences or implications of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and honestly. <laughs> This is an, it's a very, it's an insane and an unethical thing to tell another human being, regardless of the issue. Each person is sovereign. Each person has a God-given intellect. We are called to use our reason and encourage our brothers and sisters to use theirs, not encourage our brothers and sisters to suspend their ability to reason and to just do what they are being told. For an educator, or a policymaker to say those things is even more appalling. An educator should not be teaching children to not think, to suspend their ability to think, and to just believe and do without thinking. And a policymaker absolutely should not be saying that we shouldn't look into the actual effects of of recommendations, or we shouldn't be looking into uh, what is actually going to benefit those who have been historically marginalized in our country. Love for others requires that we actually look into that. Love for others requires that we do not silence one another. So a couple of reasons why I do think we need to look into data specifically when it comes to racism and fighting it is um, a couple things. The vast majority of rapists and violent criminals are men. Does this mean our society is sexist against men? Also, we've touched on this, but I think that fighting institutional racism requires uniformly standing up for the dignity of life. So it's not just when the media decides that a life is worth fighting for. Each life has equal dignity in life and in death. So um, the fact that so many innocent lives have been completely ignored in the past two years has been very eye-opening for me. Perhaps it's always been that way. It's just been so eye-opening in the last two years to hear like, you need to say this person's name, but ignore this murder and act like it didn't even happen. That's, we, we each person is absolutely, has equal dignity. Um, so I think one example is the children you were discussing who were, who were killed, the increased homicides of children, of innocent children in the past two years. I think there's, it's pretty easy to draw a correlation between the policies that were advocated for and the policies that were put in place. So many cities, large cities did defund their police source. And I think all of them have refunded them to at least some degree. Um, I know Minneapolis and Portland. Anyways, um, there are other disparities in crime as well. For instance, according to the department of justice and the U S census bureau in 2019, Black people make up 12.4% of the total U.S. population, but committed 51% of murders and non-negligent manslaughters. Non-Hispanic white people made up 57.8% of the total U.S. population, but committed 46% of murders and non-negligent manslaughters. According to Statista, the rate of murder victims is shockingly disproportionate. So again, in 2019, while black people make up only 12.4% of the U.S. population and white people make up 57.8%, nearly 2,000 more black people were killed, were murdered, than white people. Of note, in that year, more white people were shot by police than black people. Doesn't mean there's no 
racism ever. Just it's important to recognize all of that. So I, I really think that human compassion should make us fight against both inequality in incarcerations, for example, looking at how illicit drug users who are black are incarcerated at higher rates than illicit drug users who are white, but human compassion also should make us fight against this deadly inequality where black people are being killed, not by police, at vastly disproportionate rates compared to white people. Uh, I don't think that God created us to live this way, where if you look a certain way, you are more likely to be murdered. You are more likely to live in a crime-ridden neighborhood. I find it appalling that some want us to ignore these realities, that this is where we are as a society now. They want us to ignore that data. Uh, it, it is very obvious to me that there's something systemically wrong with our society, given that homicides and robberies, I didn't go into these stats, but they're kind of the same, are disproportionately committed. People are disproportionately affected by them. Um, that is wrong. This is not a statement against certain people at all, quite the opposite. It's an honest recognition of something that is systematically wrong in our culture on a broad scale. We should look at it and we should see how we can solve it. Um, I don't know why some people want us to completely ignore this and instead just defund the police, knowing that homicides are going to increase. Innocent people, more innocent people will die. So um, what do we need to do? Make all neighborhoods safer? Do we need to address mental health better? Can we do that in a, from a policy standpoint? Um, we talked a little bit about the economy, better housing, more fulfilling jobs with better pay. Um, I said earlier, I do think that BLM discusses some of these needs, but clearly states defunding the police and dismantling the nuclear family as methods to reach these solutions. And I think they're flat out wrong as with those being two of their methods to reach those solutions. So I want to believe that the goal of BLM is good. I'm not sure, however, that their solutions have been that, or their, uh, their methods have been very efficacious. So what do you mean by that? Well, I think that two of their main methods have been defunding the police and disrupting the nuclear family. And I'm still not really sure what they mean when they say disrupting nuclear I wouldn't family. say those are their two methods, though. I mean, I guess I would just push back and disagree a little bit on that. I think their their main, their main methods have been highly successful. We all know what BLM is. They've raised a True. tremendous amount of money. They've gotten incredible marketing. Like every major corporation in the United States yeah. has BLM banners. You go to the Twins game, there's BLM yeah, right there. That's true. You go to the Boston Red Sox game. Yeah. So... Totally disagree. I think they've been incredibly effective with their, their methods. Their proposed solutions may yeah. not be the best for advancing people of color. And I think that that's probably the point you're trying to make. Yeah, it but is. But they have taken off the part about destroying the nuclear family. So technically, they no longer stand for that part. Um, the defunding the police movement... Yes, it failed in Minneapolis, but it still got 40% of the vote there. So you got like a 60-40 split amongst yeah. mostly Democrats and progressives, right. right? Because in Minneapolis, there's very few people who are brave enough to live there that would consider themselves Republican or conservative mm -hmm. or libertarian. They just don't live there. It's like 10% yeah. of the population. Yeah. So 
the defund police movement mm -hmm. gained steam. It ultimately did not win the messaging war. And I think if you talk to like people who are more Democrats or political operatives, they would say that it was a messaging blunder. Like they didn't really, you know, they changed their tune. They said they didn't really mean they wanted to defund the police. They meant more they want to Real. bring police reform, public safety policing, mm -hmm. community policing as a replacement for that. So that part, you know, did fail, though, I would agree, because if you look at the people of color who live in Minneapolis, the people who live in the areas that have the most crime, mm -hmm. they don't want to defund the police. They yeah. thought that that idea was cray cray because they were seeing more people dying. Yeah. They've seen more murders, more homicides, more children dying across the board. Well, I was saying where I don't see how they're succeeding is where I think there's common ground between me and BLM, the national organization, is wanting safer neighborhoods, wanting to address mental health better, wanting, I don't know if they want a better economy, but wanting more, I don't know, maybe they don't want a better economy, uh, better They housing. want a different economy. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the core uh, criticisms of BLM and their founders are Marxists, mm -hmm. and they employ Marxist tactics to destabilize society, to demoralize certain institutions within the society, mm -hmm. including police, including churches, um, um, in other areas, businesses, small businesses, and in an effort to usher in a new form of uh, an economic structure. Mm -hmm. So most people who follow BLM are not Marxists. Mm -hmm. However, you could make a strong argument that the core foundational principles of BLM is Marxism. And so what they're actually advancing in the name of racial equity is actually a distorted form of socialism or Marxist communism, or at least they're employing these mechanisms to change society and mm -hmm. our economic structure. Well, even equity versus equality, I think, gets to some of that. Like if we're really working for, and Kamala Harris said it just a few days before the 2020 election, that the goal is for everyone to end up in the same place. So the only mm -hmm. way you can have everyone end up in the same place is for a major federal overhaul. And they want to do away with privilege as they see it. And, yeah. And the way they see what privilege is, is and, and there might be some truth to this, is socioeconomic structure. Mm -hmm. You know, being born into wealth, being born mm -hmm. into whiteness, being born into certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. They want to dismantle all that mm -hmm. and, and equalize society, which is ultimately why the people hate socialism once they engage in it and once they actually become a part of it yeah. is because it instead of the rising tide raising all ships right you have a lowering tide that lowers the standard of living for everybody mm -hmm. and it also lowers the standards we have for demo democratic processes like how we vote and how we choose yeah. our leaders and who represents us and it, it ultimately leads to the demise of the collective population which is the fundamental flaw in the entire movement in my opinion and it's why they're not focusing on the nuclear family and why they're not focusing on uh, economic policies that would advance the black family. They're, they're looking to actually deflate the current system and then reinflate it with something different. So how do we even, how do, <laughs> so is there common ground then? 
Yeah, there's common ground. The common ground is what we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. That black lives matter. Yeah. Like absolutely. we can all acknowledge that part. Mm -hmm. You don't need to sign on to black lives matter organization right. or economic philosophy. Yeah. Like as Christians, we need to recognize that black lives do matter mm -hmm. and you don't need to be ashamed or hesitant or, or argue it or anything. Mm -hmm. And like we said at the beginning too, in order for all lives to matter, black lives need to matter. In mm -hmm. order for all lives to matter, the unborn need to matter, mm -hmm. the disabled need to matter, the elderly need to matter, the people who don't want to get certain medical procedures matter. Mm -hmm. Like, we're all the same. We're mm -hmm. all born with the same dignity under God. Mm -hmm. We're made in His image. So where can we find common ground with someone who says, this was a meme that was shared a lot, Imagine thinking that BLM is an agenda being forced upon our society rather than a call for you to do better. Because I think there's it's some... both. Yeah, that, well, that's what I mean. That's where it's and, difficult. And they're trying cause... to just lump everything into one category. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's why it's not you're either with us or against us when it comes to racism, but that's how it's framed. Right. And that's how they get people who don't want to think about the issue or who don't want to look into the stats or to the research to find out what the truth is or even the details of some of these horrific things mm -hmm. that we uh, focus in on society. They'd rather, they, they just choose to buy into the narrative and that's how you get pe people on board. We see the same thing with coronavirus sure. and the restrictions and the doses. Mm -hmm. Don't question it, just do it. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it, you are going to be ostracized from family gatherings, mm -hmm. from seeing your uncle, from going to the senior home, from going to the restaurant, from being able to participate in the PTA or mm -hmm. send your kid to certain schools. Like you're going to be an outcast. Mm -hmm. So you only need a certain percentage of the population to be fanatical, right? And we're going to talk about this in, in our next show, actually, is mass formation psychosis. But I think these same principles apply and, and Marxists are applying this psychological social phenomena to populations to move people in certain directions. So if you dis disagree with me, then you're part of the part of that group. But the vast majority of people, not vast majority, but 50 to 60 percent of the people are just in the mushy middle. They don't really want to think. They don't want their illusions destroyed or disrupted. They're going to go along to get along. And that's kind of what that meme is getting at. So if you're in that mushy middle, mm -hmm. don't look into this. Join BLM, don't question it. And if you don't, you're racist. Mm -hmm. And it's just completely wrong. That's not how it is. Yeah. You can be both anti-racist and pro-capitalist and pro-America easily mm -hmm. so i think that's how you respond to it and that's why you know focusing in on the truth promoting truth and and having these discussions with people who you know and love and trust that they're not completely you know on on one side because that's the reality of the world we're living on if if somebody's fanatical and they're telling all these things that don't make sense and they're trying to get you to buy into something that you don't logically agree with, that person very well, I don't know the right word to describe <laughs> but there might be no hope. There's no hope to try to discuss these issues. Yeah. You know, there's no hope. But most of us, and, and the more that we can build to the people who are willing to discuss them yeah. and willing to engage in free thought and debate 
and to tackle tough issues mm -hmm. and to do that type of research and so that you have the knowledge and you're armed with it, uh, that's kind of where our hope is. It's more people awakening or more people waking up to the reality of what's going on in society, what's going on in, inside people's minds, and being brave enough to stand for truth. Hmm. But that'll be great to see our next show. Yeah. I can't wait to put this one together. We've already written it, so. Yes. Thank you for, for bearing with us. If you listen to the whole thing, we'd love to hear your thoughts, and I appreciate talking through this and thinking through all this, and I think we should all continue, myself included. So if you like this, please uh, like and subscribe. If you're willing yes, to share, you don't need to share and say you agree with everything we said. You can share and just say, here's some interesting thoughts. And we'll link to the articles, which include the studies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yep. We'll see you again soon, everybody. Yep. Bye.